Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is a funny time, really. I mean, for those who know me personally, uh, I've been traveling like crazy. And so at the moment, I'm back in Hong Kong. And for this week, though, I thought it would be really good to revisit uh, episode 89 with Thor Hansen. Uh, you know, he's written a whole bunch of books. And I'd say this is one of the good ones. If you want to learn about uh, climate change, if you want to learn about animal plasticity, just if you want to get into the amazing wonder of, of evolution and how animals change over time. It's, yeah, it's a good one. Thor is, is a good one. So uh, do enjoy and have a fantastic week before these uh, holidays. Well, to me, and I should answer this by saying I'm not the world's greatest photographer by any means, but I consider photography to be a form of storytelling. And storytelling is a theme that really moves through my career in several ways. I'm a scientist, I'm a writer, and I feel that photography can be an aspect of that storytelling practice telling things that are harder to put into words in some case, or spurring conversations that might not happen uh, if you didn't have the image there as part of that story. Thor Hansen, thank you and welcome to Shooting It Raw. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Such a pleasure. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh... Your accent tells me you're American. Yes. Now, where, where, where? You see, we we've never met before. We've never spoken. This is the first time I see your face. A uh, very kind-looking face. Uh, I, you tell me that you're in a hotel, which uh, is crazy uh, dec decoration behind you. So, thank you for joining me, and uh, I I'm so excited to to dive into into your into your uh, images and into your work and into your life. Where, where are you right now? Well, I'm joining you right now from Portland, Oregon, where I am at the tail end of a book tour. I had a book come out uh, a little over a month ago. And so I'm here doing a few events and it worked out to, in spite of a very strange time difference, you are what, 19 hours ahead of me, I think, or yeah. behind me or something. Yeah. Uh, in spite of that, we found a time here that works and I'm able to join you from the room. So I'm here in Portland doing a few uh, signing events and giving lectures and so forth, all associated with a book that, uh, that just came out recently. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I have a very broad... Uh, eclectic background, book publishing, scientific book publishing being part of it. So I worked for Elsevier. So if you know Elsevier. Um, Absolutely. Great. They, they're not a sponsor. But <laughs> yeah, like uh, fascinated. Like, so, so here's the thing about the podcast, right? So I mentioned that earlier. I mentioned that it's about asking if life is a gift, how do we make every second count? And I'm here in Hong Kong, and I, I basically ask myself, okay, what do I want to learn about? What do I want to share? What's fascinating to me? And then I just go out and find people to talk to. And, 
your the your name your your book just it just came out and uh, so so what's the title of your book please? This book is called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid: The Fraught and Fascinating Biology of Climate Change. My friend, I'm going to have a crush on you. I hope you don't mind. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> no problem. Man, I'm so happy we're talking. Okay, okay, this is great. This is great. Okay. Yes, big plug for your book, for sure. Knowing how how book publishing is, the window of promotion is actually very narrow. It's like you 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 how long did it take for you to write you say this book? So how long did it take for you to write this book? This book took oh about two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a baby that takes a long time to put together, to edit, to finally put it out, and then put it into the world. And you know, the window of, of promotion and to have people pick it up and notice it is very it's very tight. So right now you're doing how long is your promotional tour? Well, I've been off and on doing this now since the end of uh, end of September, so about five five weeks wow. of effort, and this is the tail end of it. And it's and lucky you though that you can travel relatively openly, like with COVID, in the U.S. I mean, in Hong Kong, there's no movement. It's like we're we're frozen. We're we're right. under house arrest, basically. Well, yeah, and it is it is this this time around a real hodgepodge. Some events done virtually through Zoom and other means, and others that are in person. It sort of depends on the the venue whether you know some bookstores are having people in, and some universities are doing in person things. Right. Others uh, are not. So last night, for example, I did a lecture on Zoom to a bookstore. And then five minutes later, I went downstairs in the hotel and gave a, an in-person lecture at, at a, uh, for, a, for a museum. So okay. it was, it's that sort of combination. Everyone's, I think, very open, though, to, to trying to do something yeah. and very forgiving in terms of the restrictions we're all living under. Yeah. So do you teach through university or... At the moment, no. I am really a full-time writer at this point. A little bit of consulting and so forth as well. I do some video work and, and wow. uh, other things too. But most of what I'm doing these days is writing the books. Okay. So uh, this is what happens. I get, okay, a little bit about me. I get super excited by, by topics and people. Uh, my interview style is I'll talk for a while. And then the person says, I think you asked something and, and then I'll just answer. So answer whatever question you want to answer because I'm just going to eat it up. And I want to know everything about you. Like, okay, so what, what did you study? Like, what, what is your formation, your core formation professionally? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, a number of projects in my background, sort of a generalist in science. I started off as an undergraduate studying a you know, combination of writing and ecology, a double major. Oh, I love it. And I went on in uh, graduate school to do a master's degree in something called the Field Naturalist Program, Okay, uh, which is a marvelous program at the University of Vermont in the States oh. where... Uh, yeah, where they, they it's based in the botany department, but you really work with people from all disciplines in the natural sciences, sort of right. based on the old, you know, old school 19th century naturalists. Sort oh, of wow. Uh, so that was great. And then uh, my doctoral work was done in a joint PhD program between the University of Idaho in the States and a university in Costa Rica. Oh, wow. And again, it was an interdisciplinary and international uh, 
pro program where we had, you know, over 20 doctoral students working in teams and different, you know, ecosystems. And, uh, oh. you know, it was, it was really an interesting and I know, love it. very rewarding program. So I love those it. are the things that I did, you know, in terms of education and then my research and, and work projects have been mostly in conservation biology, uh, you know, on various things from, uh, from Africa to Central America to Alaska oh, and wow. so forth. Uh, and and working in a, a range of projects from some primate work to bird studies and botanical studies. And in the last 10 years or so, I've really shifted more of my focus over to the storytelling of science. Okay. And that I think that really occurred because of some of the frustration I felt at seeing so many fascinating discoveries and ideas in the scientific community that never be it made it beyond that you know rather limited audience of the peer-reviewed journals right. and so forth and you know which is an essential part of science but nonetheless there were so many stories that i saw that weren't getting out to a broader audience and i felt that i could help make a contribution in that regard and so more and more of my time now has been spent on the storytelling i so love it you have you have so many okay as a communications person um i you know i my first degree was in creative writing but then i, I sort of meandered into into medicine and science and communication but you have so many good things going one your name thor hansen i mean <laughs> it does not get better than that like what a name uh your face is perfect your voice is so good, and I really hope in the recording, the warmth of your voice is going to get captured because you have a great voice. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I I don't know what uh, what to say about it. I'm not sure my my young son would agree with you. He hears enough of my hot air at home. But just uh, say, I at think any rate, <laughs> thank you is a good place to start. Um, yeah. Let's dive into the photos and then that way learn about your work because I I know sure. I could talk to you for ages. Okay. Yes? Absolutely. Awesome. Fire away. Okay. So the first photo, okay, and this is how the, the mechanics work. I don't look at them until I speak with the person. So then I, I sort of open them and I look at them and then it's like, oh, fresh. So it's really my first interpretation and reaction. So in the photograph, you are uh, in, it's like a bright sunny day. You're by a bunch of, it looks like a garden because it's all like lots, lots of kind of, it looks like poppies. It looks, yeah, I guess it's poppies. Um, you're wearing a, sort of a little cap on your head. You're wearing a checkered shirt. It's, it's, it looks like it's high noon, basically. It's very bright. Probably summer, you're, you're leaning down, you're wearing galoshes, which is a great word. And whose garden is this and what are you collecting? What, what are you doing? What is it? So that is a picture uh, right in our own garden at home, and it's high noon, which is a good time to look for insects. Okay. And so what I'm doing is, uh, you'll see I've got a little tube in my hand, and my son and I call this bee tubing out there uh, looking for native bees. Oh. We catch them in the little clear tube so that we can look at them alive and identify them and then let them go oh. again. So it's a really nice way to get out and collect all kinds of insects. I'm pretty sure in that picture of what we were after probably uh, were various kinds, various species right. of bumblebees. Okay, okay. So why, why I mean, if we're going to, 
you know, as far as curating a conversation, why start with this image? Well, I like that image in, in that it captures, a, you know, a little story. Here we are at home doing something we enjoy uh, out in the garden, collecting insects. I have a background that's related to the bee world, having written a, a book about native bees and bee evolution and so on. Uh, and what I like about the story is that I always try when I'm communicating about science, whether it's through writing or giving lectures or leading field walks, you know, to make it something that we do every day, yeah. not something that we just think about when we see a documentary or when we open a book and do some reading. But what can we do to bring biology and natural history into daily life? Right. And I, I, so that's one of the reasons I like that photo because it's just the backyard at home and a little spare time and you can get out and see something really cool. And you can do that kind of thing anywhere, whether you are, you know, here I am in, in downtown Portland, but there are uh, parks right outside sure. this hotel. I already noticed a huge, uh, 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 park that stretches up for several blocks from where uh, I'm sitting right here. You can do it in the window box in an apartment. You could do it at a national park, wherever you happen to be. Uh, there are these opportunities to bring these observations of nature right yeah. into daily life. Yeah. So did you grow up in, you mentioned university in, in Vermont, but is that where you grew up in the Northeast or did you grow up in the Northwest or what part of the U.S. did you grow up in? I am from the Pacific Northwest, so, oh, okay. that, so that is home. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So I did an undergraduate degree down in Southern California, and I did a, a, a master's over in Vermont in the Northeast, and then my doctoral work was in Idaho. So if I had done a postdoc down in, in Florida, I would have hit all four corners Perfect. of the continental United States. I, yeah. I didn't do that, but I came close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, do you want to talk more about this this? Bright image. I mean, are those poppies flowers? Whole variety of wildflowers right. in that picture. Okay. And uh, I don't have it right here in front of me, so we won't get into the the botany. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot. A, don't worry. <laughs> a good. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, certainly a good uh, a good place to look for for bugs. That's okay. What we're up to. Nice. Uh, let's move on to the next photo. Sure. Okay. Oh, I love it. I love it. So it's, it's, it's a color photograph, but because of the subject and everything, it looks very monochromatic. Uh, so there's like a, a sort of a, um, what are those called for the, for the eyepiece for the magnifier? What's it called? What's that called? Oh, there's a hand lens. A hand lens. Okay. So there's a hand lens and it's sitting on a rock that could, I mean, it could very well pass as for a fossil, but it could just be a, piece of dried mud and in it is the imprint of a, a, cup, a couple of leaves and this cake of, of rock which could be could be a fossil but I doubt it uh, but is actually sitting on a kind of kind of gravelly stone beneath and in it you could just see some hints of color of like a um, coniferous leaves pines I guess yeah so what what am I looking at so you are indeed looking at a fossil and and believe it or not that imprint that you see in the rock there of the leaves is over 40 million years old oh sweet the, the yeah, detail so is fantastic when, i know it's really really a cool piece of 
of history there. And I was lucky enough as a child to grow up in a place where those fossils were really just down the street. Oh, from wow. Me. wow. Yeah. Down the alley, you know, the kids, we'd always meet in the alley if we we're going to ride bikes or, you know, play some baseball or what have you. And one of my favorite alley activities was to go to this place where the bedrock, the sandstone was exposed okay. and break off chunks of this rock. And we thought we were looking for dinosaurs. We, uh, we didn't uh, have the uh, the era quite right, uh, but nonetheless, we uh, saw all these great fossils and grew up doing that. Wow. And only later, when I began writing this most recent book about climate change, did I really bother to look up the history of those fossils that I'd grown up around. Right. And I realized that by random chance, my childhood home was perched on this ridge of sandstone that dated back to a time that climate biologists now and climate scientists look to as sort of an, an analogy for modern climate change. It was a period of time when the earth was a lot warmer, when there was a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah, And so it's, it's something that scientists now look at as a model for where we're headed. And I grew up looking at that stuff all day long. So anyway, it was uh, a, a great revelation and fun for me to get back to that part of the world, find one of those fossils when I was doing research for the book, and then talk to a scientist who's done a lot of studies about those fossils and about that era, and pick her brain about what it means for modern climate change. Okay. So when we, let's dive into that for, okay, for a little bit. So, so the, um, how many books have you written? I have written six books. Six books. Okay. This book, let's go back to the impetus of, I mean, was it your publisher who said, hey, Thor, you've got to do it. You've got to put together another book. Or is it kind of, was the, the impulse internally where you're saying, okay, I, I, this book has to be written. I have to do it. I'm committing to it. So, so talk about, about the book, like where it came from and, and, Put the hook people on it because I personally am fascinated. But yeah, go for it. It's really has to do with polar bears, believe it or not. Okay. And it, <laughs> the inspiration, in some ways, truly, uh, came to me from that iconic image that we're all familiar with of the lonely polar bear stranded on a shrinking iceberg. Yeah. And that has become really iconic for the biological impacts of climate change. You see it everywhere in discussions of the climate crisis. But too often, in, in my opinion at least, the conversation stops there. We show that image of the polar bear and then move on in doing so, overlooking this incredible biological backstory that is really at the heart of any climate change scenario. Okay. Because if you think about it, what matters isn't so much the change as how plants and animals respond to the change. Okay. So if all species on the planet got along just as well in all sorts of conditions, then you could change the weather all you want and it wouldn't matter. What right. matters is that every species, including our own, has adapted to particular environmental conditions. Yep. And that is the challenge then for this period of rapid change is what happens when you change those conditions and how do plants and animals respond? It's the sum of those reactions yeah. that will really determine the future. So, so I felt that that was something not being covered nearly enough in public discourse. And I wanted to investigate it, 
find out what biologists were measuring in the field, what sorts of responses were already playing out, not the predictions, but what's already happening that we can see on the ground and translate their stories into a book form that anyone could read okay. and learn. Right, right. So walk us through, maybe, so, so you're, you're saying that the era that this particular fossil, and, and it's, uh, I really hope whoever's listening to this will actually go on, on the YouTube or the website or whatever to actually find, to actually see the image because the imprint of the leaf is so perfect that as, as even though it's fossilized, it looks like it's so fresh. Like, 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 like I said, you know, if I were to be to bet on it, I would have bet that's actually just a mud, a cake of mud. It's just, it's so pristine. Now, why don't you describe the, what that era tells you about today in terms of, the, of a relationship? Sure. Well, I spoke with a woman who has spent a lot of time studying fossils from that era. And one of the great things about studying fossils and about geology is that you can move rapidly through long periods sure. of time. Just in, depending on the rocks you're looking at, a few inches can be thousands or even millions, millions of yeah. years. And so what she uh, has been able to do is study, and she uh, specializes on the plant life of that uh, period, study how communities of plants changed as the climate changed. Okay. And so she can see that warm periods change the plant communities and she can see what happens when things cool off again. She can see what happens when things change slowly versus when they change fast. Uh, so it's a very valuable tool for comparing to the present in that one of the lessons that she has brought forward from that ancient sandstone and other sorts of stone uh, and those fossils is that there's, there is some built-in resilience yeah. in natural systems. Yeah. And I, I found that very interesting because I, it was echoed by many of the, the biologists that I spoke with studying modern climate change. We have this image that, uh, and that this, in the face of this crisis, that species will go extinct and they will. We are already losing species. But plants and animals are not passive bystanders. Nope. Oh, yeah. nature, uh, nature is not defenseless. Sure. And we can measure these responses now happening as species struggle to cope with this change. And what I appreciate about uh, her name is Renee. Uh, Love, she goes, shortens the last name, but uh, breeds love, trout is the whole thing. But anyway, her, uh, her thesis and what she did in her doctoral work showed that in spite of these rapid changes in the past, um, she didn't see a lot of extinctions, okay. which I found fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have extinctions, we're already seeing them, but there's also resilience in these systems so that, in her case, plants, but we know now that plants and animals, many of them, have the ability to get through periods of rapid change. Yeah. And I found that a really, well, an, an encouraging lesson in, some, yeah. in yeah. some ways. Okay. Right. Now, is this image of a fossil that you made, like this is your magnifying glass, like this is your, or is this a, a kind of a, a borrowed image? 
No, that's one that I took. I wanted to go back to that, to the town where I grew up. Well, first I wanted to go to the alley where I had found all these fossils as yeah. a kid. Yeah. And I did. I went back to the neighborhood and I walked down the alley, the public alley. And, and uh, unfortunately, someone has built a, a retaining wall right over all of the fossils <laughs> that we used to right. look at as a kid. And I sat, sat there and looked at that. And I found a little spot at the edge where I was yeah. starting to tap away and get some get some stuff, but I was getting some pretty strange looks, you know, sure. to be, uh, in the back. Alley. Like when you're a kid and someone sees you, yeah. uh, getting fossils, they tell you to go home. Right. You right. Know, when you are a middle-aged guy, you know, with a backpack and a pandemic mask and, uh, you know, a big rock hammer, yeah. you know, they call the cops. So I, I decided I better get out of there and find <laughs> another, another more private outcrop. Just society uh, penalizing your curiosity. Yeah, exactly. So I found I knew of another place where the same rock was available for a, a more leisurely investigation. And so I was breaking apart chunks of rock and I found that fossil uh, that was a beautiful one. It's sort of a, a, a related to a birch, yep. a modern birch tree uh, and, and and took that photograph right there in the field, right after I, I broke it. open that rock. I love it. Um, so in shaping your book, so for some, so, so for somebody who wants to get inside your head to understand how that evolved, you know, in terms of you, you have this impulse, this thesis that might not be clearly set out at first, but kind of emerges as you write it. Now, how much of going back to to, to fill in the, the the material, to fill in the blanks, or to actually fill out the the, the thinking and the date, the information and whatever. How much of that was inspired by the fact that you're writing books? What I mean is to say, here you are, your body goes back to your old town. And maybe it never occurred to you to go back, but then you go back. And then you try, you kind of rediscover, you have to rediscover your old haunts. And you're walking through like your memory as much as, as the present. And then there's this retaining wall and you're just like, wait a second. And you kind of figure out and then you finally find this, this, this record, this piece of, of fossil. Now, how much of that was because of you writing the book and how much of that was because of just you trying to satisfy the itch of saying, well, I've got this curiosity. I want to see if I can find some kind of evidence to support that. You know, you're, you're saying like, like or yeah. how's yeah. this? If my question isn't clear, how about you formulate a question and answer that one? No, I think I see where you're going. But for me, when I'm working on a book project, I spend a lot of time at the beginning creating a really detailed outline. Yeah. Because as you can imagine, for a topic like the biology of climate change, there's just a deluge of information out there. And I really had to come up with a way to organize it. And so I organized it into... Uh, describing and researching the challenges, the specific challenges that rapid change creates for plants and animals. You know, it changes the timing of events in nature. There are weather extremes that they're unaccustomed to, all of those sorts of things. What right. really happens that challenges them? And then how do they respond? You know, do they move? Do they adapt? Do they evolve? Do they find a place to take refuge? All of those sorts of things give the, the story some form. And then I go and start looking for the examples and the specific narratives that are going to fill out 
that outline. Okay. And it's in that at that stage where things uh, take on a real you know, sense of creativity and spontaneity in that you find these stories that take on a life of their own. Yeah. And I was astounded in that portion of the book because I had mapped this out, but I did not know at the time the age of the fossils that I dug up as a child. I did not know that that happens to be, you know, a period of time that that modern scientists are really interested in in terms of climate change. I'd never met Renee. I'd never heard of her work. Uh, so it just, that's in some case, in some ways, a really fun part of putting a book together. Sure. When you get to something like that, that really takes on its own story and draws you along with it. For sure. Can you, we breezed by the title, but can you say slowly for uh, for your host who might be a bit dim-witted this morning, what is the title again? The title is Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, The Fraught and Fascinating Biology of Climate Change. Okay. Now I've, I've sat with the title. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, that you uh, you hit it on the head. Often when I get out on the road and I need to explain a book, sometimes it's really a challenge because I've got 300 pages and, you know, I, you know, it's all about the evolution of bees or something. How do you, yeah. you know, narrow that down? Yeah. But I really realized from the start when I got out with this book that if I can explain the title to people, then they're really going to understand the whole concept of the book. So we can break that down and we can break it down by by phrases. The biology of climate change really has to do with what happens to plants and animals when you shove them outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. You know, and and the comfort zone for us is we're familiar with it as the place on the thermostat that you set the temperature in your house or yeah. your apartment. Right. And and so we set it at you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit or thereabouts, which is right in the middle of our comfort zone. So climate change biology really asks the question, what happens when it gets outside of the comfort zone? What's, sure. What happens when the climate is uncontrolled or even out of control? And so that leads us into the ways that plants and animals adapt to that sort of change. Yeah. And it leads us to a concept that biologists call plasticity which means how, uh, you know, if you think about the old comic book character, the old superhero plastic man who can yeah. stretch and bend his body into any shape at the drop of a hat to overcome any challenge, uh, that would be a pretty useful way to respond to climate change. You could do anything, right? And so we look at plants and animals to see what measure of plasticity they have. Okay. Can they change their behaviors? Can they change you know, how they live to cope with these challenges. And uh, we see a great range of plasticity in nature. If we were going to have an Olympics of plasticity, you might give a medal to this creature called the Humboldt squid. Right. Okay. And the Humboldt squid uh, is a species that has a big range in the Pacific Ocean. But in Mexico, in the Gulf of California, there's been a squid fishery on these things for decades. Yeah. Yet, after a series of marine heat waves, climate-driven heat waves, and the water that uh, occurred and continued to occur in that region, the squid 
just disappeared. Yeah. You know, everyone figured, well, they've, they've shifted, they've gone to find their comfort zone somewhere else. You know, they've gone to other parts of their range until scientists went down there and did some surveys and found that in fact, the squid were still there and more numerous really than ever. But instead of moving to cope with this heat stress, they had changed their lifestyles radically. Oh, wow. They were maturing in half the time living only half as long, they were eating different foods, and under those constraints, their adult bodies were only a fraction of the size that they had been in the past. Okay. They were too small to bite on the hooks that the fishermen traditionally used to catch them. And the few that they could hook, they were throwing back. They thought they were juveniles or maybe even another species. Uh, So that sort of plasticity is a very useful trait in terms of coping with climate change. Fascinating. And and most of what we've seen to date in nature is some version of that kind of plasticity. Creatures that can change their behavior, change what they eat, change how their bodies really even develop to deal with these new conditions. Those things are already baked into their their genetic code. Yeah, yeah. They've got it in their DNA somehow. But we are also seeing now signs of actual evolution beginning to play out in nature in response to climate change. Okay. And one one of the best stories of that, the best examples, comes to us from the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean, where a fellow named uh, Colin Donahue was studying lizards. Okay. And he was out there measuring these little anole lizards, which are distant cousins of the iguana, small lizards, as part of a project where they were going to remove invasive rats from these islands. Okay. And the rats had been eating the lizards, so if you remove the rats, the lizards should do better. And so he went out, measured all the lizards, and then they were going to get rid of the rats. But then two hurricanes struck back to back and flatten that island okay and the rat project was put on an indefinite hold but colin realized that he had a rare opportunity to study the effects of the hurricanes so he went right back he and it sort of had a scientific bit of deja vu he redid the exact same field project he just completed makes sense and he measured all the lizards again And he learned that the lizards that survived those hurricanes were the ones with the largest toe pads and the largest, strongest front legs and the shortest back legs. And he wanted to figure out then, well, why is that? The, The population now, all those parameters have changed in this population of lizards. These are the ones that could survive a hurricane. So he needed to know how lizards behaved in hurricane force winds. Right. You can't stand there in a hurricane taking notes. Sure, sure. So he recreated a hurricane by using a leaf blower. Okay. Uh, he traveled with a leaf blower. He had it in his hotel room. Awesome. And he uh, he took these lizards captured them. I should say in advance, no lizards were harmed. Yeah. He had this plan so that there was a soft uh, net for them to, to land in. But he put them on a stick and then he would turn on the leaf blower, measure the speed of the wind and watch their behavior. And when he did that, he could see how as the wind increased, their back legs would slip off the stick and leave them hanging on for uh. dear life with their front legs yeah. and their whole body flapping like a flag in the wind uh, until it became too strong. Eventually they would slip off. 
So that perfectly explained what he'd seen in his data because the toe pads of lizards are, are sticky and help grip to the stick and the strong front legs help them hold on tight. And it explained those short back legs because as the body was flapping in the wind, shorter legs meant less drag right, on the right, body. Right, right, right. And that could help them hang on for a few more seconds. Wow, wow. So he realized that he had seen survival of the fittest in action. And he went back, saw how those traits were being passed on to the next generation and showed that, in fact, he had measured evolution taking place, not over so the course fast. of hundreds of years, in a single field Yeah, season. that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, really cool. When Sometimes I have a guest. So you had mentioned, for example, the polar bear on a ice cap. Well, one of the yeah. guests I had in, based in India was a wildlife photographer who one of his most celebrated images is of the lone polar bear stuck on an ice floe. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, I know we could get lost in this. Uh, how about we move on to the next photo? We haven't gone through the whole title of your book yet, though. Or have we? Let's see. What did we get? We had hurricane lizards, plastic squid. We had the biology of climate change. Fraught and fascinating. Fraught, I think, is almost self-explanatory in that as these things shift, it upends all sorts of ecological relationships. It upends competition. It changes things like pollination and interactions like predation as these species all change. And yes, it does also increase extinction for some species. And we've seen that already with the, the Bramble Key Malomies, which is a little mouse-like creature in Australia. Right. The first documented mammal casualty to climate change, all of its habitat now inundated by sea level rise. Wow, wow. So I think studying these biological questions about climate change, it doesn't make scientists worry less about the crisis, but it can help us to worry smart, help us to be smarter. Yeah. I mean, you can only manage what you understand. So if you, you know, yes. like it, that's, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's patently uh, to me reasonable. Let's take this as the ideal segue to go into your next photograph. Excellent. Boom! I love it! Okay, so it's a photo of you. Uh, I know you've titled the images, but again, I don't like, I don't want to be distraught or, or I, I, I love the idea of just resp responding like just immediately. And okay, so the image is of you in an office of some sort. Uh, maybe it's your lab. I have no idea. You're standing in a very nice olive green shirt. Uh, you're, you got a checkered shirt underneath. Your hair is tied back. Big smile, looking at the photographer. Not quite looking straight into the lens, but looking off off lens uh, line of the thing. On your shoulder is a enormous nut or a seed. And when I say enormous, it's uh, bigger than a basketball. It's, uh, it's, it's huge. Roughly speaking, do you remember how heavy it is? That specimen is a, a display specimen that's been dried and hollowed out. But when those seeds are fresh, they can weigh as much as 40 pounds. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that's one seed that weighs about 40 pounds in one hand that's like sitting on your shoulder. And in the other hand, you're holding a vial. And I suspect there's something interesting going on between both. So what, what's, what is this image, please? So the story of this image has to do with 
the great extremes of evolution. Yeah. And I wrote a book all about the natural history and evolution of seeds. And this particular image captures something that really has stayed with me ever since. And that is the extremes that are possible. If you think about that gigantic seed on my shoulder, which is the largest seed in the world, it's called the double coconut. It grows only on two islands in the Seychelles out isolated in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Oh, wow. And then in the vial, in the other hand, I have approximately one million seeds from a common native orchid that grows in my backyard. Okay. So what you see there is an orchid seed, which consists of just, you know, 20 or 30 cells. You really need a microscope to see those things clearly. And you can easily collect a little... Uh, they're like motes of dust, you know. Yeah. And so my son and I collected that little vial full and and I weighed them out and figured out we had about a million in there huh. versus this what would be fresh, a 40 pound seed on my shoulder. And yet you pause back up and realize those things evolved to do the same thing. Yep. Those are both versions of the seed. They are the re reproductive uh, bits of these flowering plants. Uh, that are out there to make a new plant. Either one can grow into a single plant. Yeah. So you have a 40-pound version, 11 orders of magnitude larger than these dust motes in the vial with the very same purpose. Sure. So that kind of difference, I think, really underscores evolutionary potential. And I've loved that example ever since. I love when, I, like as humans or as my for myself that that juxtaposing two sort of i mean extremes like in in, in your case is such a powerful way of hitting home a lesson whatever that lesson is right so for example when people compare astronomical distances and they kind of to get to help our wrap wrap our heads around it they kind of use like a, a similar scale to kind of go oh okay now I can kind of understand that better. So mm -hmm. clearly you're dedicated to communicating and to educating. So what was this, the circumstance of this photo being made beyond the novelty? Like, were you just making it for yourself or were you using it as, a, as an aid? Were you using it as part of a program? Like, why did you do that? Good question. I think I, think I took that photograph because I was going to use it in a lecture mm. and will often, you know, take that large seed. It's easy to travel with orchid seeds, if yeah. you can imagine, but it's pretty hard to fit that big one under the seat in front of you on a plane. Yeah. Uh, so I think I, I took that photo specifically for lectures where I would, would not be able to go with the double coconut itself, but right. to have that image so that I could uh, still tell that, that very useful and powerful story. Right. So do you have an example for a listener of something that connects in our, in your, in our speech and in, in, in your mind and in your work? You're making a sort of a connection of climate change, which is a big pressing issue, with the things that you've studied. And so do you have a kind of other example that really makes it concrete and makes it, that drives the point home of either an insight or something to motivate people to action. Can you name something else from your work that will kind of create some kind of epiphany in a listener? 
I think what we're beginning to see now, particularly in the last six months or so in North America, at least, but really this kind of thing is happening around the globe, is we're starting to see a shift in the public perception of climate change from something abstract and distant. Yeah. You know, your friend's famous picture with the polar bear, that's been iconic in part because, you know, people think, well, climate change is is too bad, but it's happening, you know, somewhere. It's up in the Arctic. It's far away from me and mm -hmm. so forth. But we have had this series now of and continuing series of weather extremes. In the Pacific Northwest, where I live, we had a, what they call it now a heat dome bringing record setting temperatures, 120 degree temperatures, wow. uh, far beyond anything that was predicted for our region. Right. Uh, that really started to get people of all walks of life thinking about climate change as something every day in right. their face, in their world. And I think that's a really important change that's now underway in our perception of this of this topic. And also, I think it will be important in how we respond and react as a society, because as a species, we are very good with immediate threats. You know, if a rhinoceros is charging towards us, we know how to respond. Right. Uh, much more challenging for us to respond to abstract threats. Right. So I think we're seeing climate change become more immediate. And I think that's going to inform our response. Yeah. And yet, and yet, so, I, you know, let's go back to the word of plasticity. I mean, as a species, we are remarkably adaptable, right? So yes. one of the things that I notice, you know, from my own studies, my own observation, for example, is that when we see oh, that cute little bird or that cute little whatever. So we can't help but, but uh, like, like a, a bunny rabbit, right? Like you look at a bunny and you're like, oh, they're so sweet and they're so cute. And you kind of project these kinds of, uh, these very kind of innocent feelings onto them. When in reality, in, the, in, in their outside existence, it's brutal, the winters that, that they have to live through in the winter, you know, it's like life and death, meal to meal to meal. It's really intense. And so I can, like, for example, for our species, being so adaptable and having that plasticity, we can, we sometimes, do you think it's wrong of us to project a kind of frailty onto other species? Or do you think it's accurate to think, well, we are more, we do, are, are more adaptable and can cope with swings of climate change better than the, 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 the lizards, for example. Sure. I, I think I see where you're going with that. And, and <laughs> Good. <laughs> we, um, we are a remarkably plastic species. I mean, we, we were in the, we're in the running. There's the plastic squid, but we've got a lot of plasticity yeah. in our system as well. But I think when you get into the nitty gritty of these examples from nature, one of the lessons that we take home is that we're just another species on this planet trying to cope. And we're coping with the same basic toolbox of responses. Right. And as an example, I would point to a recent hurricane in New Orleans right. several months ago that swept through with, with great force. But uh, the seawall that had been built right. recently there held, and it held 
the floodwaters back from the city of New Orleans, okay. which I think is a very interesting example of adaptation in place, sure. if you will. Sure. So we look out in nature and we see some creatures like the Humboldt squid figured out how to adapt and stay where it was. Yeah. That's one possible way to cope with these challenges. We see a lot of other creatures that have picked up and moved between right. 25 and 85 percent of the species on this planet are shifting their ranges. They're out there looking for their comfort zone in this new landscape. Right. So what I find interesting about the New Orleans hurricane example is that the seawall held back the floodwaters, but it did so protecting a population, an urban population in New Orleans that's still over 20% smaller than it was before Hurricane Katrina right. in 2004. So all of those people that left, that left, tens of thousands of people left New Orleans because for them, they decided that it was no longer inhabitable. Yeah, they, they couldn't cope with it. Yeah, yeah. They left and they didn't come back. And so in that example, you then see two of the very same responses that we are seeing and documenting all the time as biologists in nature. And it brings home to me the fact that, you know, we, yes, we're plastic, but we're doing the very same things that plants and animals Absolutely. are doing all around the world. Yes. Let's move on to the next one. You know, the, there's there's not enough there not enough minutes in an hour because it's already almost an hour, and so I want to go <laughs> to your next photo. Your next photo. Now, first of all, did you make the next photo? Tell me what the photo is, and I'll tell you if I made it. So it's a photo of a. Um, okay, there is a. A beautiful yellow and white flower that's quite dainty. It's quite, it's like a wild flower. And on it is a bee that is holding oh, onto yeah. the top of the thing. I will look at the title. It says Relationship at yeah, Risk. Yeah. So you know what the image is? I do. Yeah, I did take that picture. Great photo. Nice. So that photo. It captures something that is one of the big themes of climate change biology, and that is how the changing climate is disrupting relationships okay. in nature yeah. and changing the timing of events in nature. The species that you're looking at there is, first of all, a wildflower called death camas, okay. which like many plants, it produces toxins to ward off would-be attackers. Right. You know, it puts uh, toxins in its leaves to ward off herbivores and it puts them in its seeds to ward off anything that might nibble them, a mouse or what have you. Lots of plants do that. Death camas, though, puts its poisons everywhere. The wow. whole plant is toxic. The pollen and the nectar are toxic. Wow. Right? The, the scientific name for this plant is Toxicoscordion venenosum wow. venenosum, wow. which means... It means poisonous, <laughs> bold, poisonous, poisonous. I mean, yeah. they just, you can't get more poisonous than this plant, uh, which is great in terms of being protected against herbivores, yeah. but it, it puts the plant uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, it has put the plant in a bit of a bind when it comes to pollination. Sure. Because it's pretty hard to attract insects to your flowers when instead of offering them a tasty reward, you are offering them seizures and paralysis you wow. know, and death. Wow. So the bee that you see on that flower is one of only a handful of species and the only bee 
that has figured out a way to tolerate death camas poison. Okay. So what you see developing then there is a very tight codependent co-evolved relationship between the flower and the bee in that the bee has an almost exclusive source of pollen and nectar all to itself. Uh, and the, the, the plant on the other hand has a very dedicated pollinator that's yeah. going to just visit its flowers all day long. So what's happening, however, is that as the climate warms during the springtime and the air temperatures warm, the plants are now blooming in many places two weeks or longer earlier than they did just 30 years ago. Responding to those warm air temperatures, it makes sense. The bees, however, nest in the ground okay. where temperatures are warming much more slowly. Oh, okay. So the bees are still on the old schedule. And if that trend continues, it threatens to pull these two codependent species apart. Not in space. They're still in the same landscapes, but it's pulling them apart in time. Yes. Creating what we call in biology a timing mismatch so that you would have the flowers blooming too early for their bees and the bees emerging too late for their flowers. Oh, and shit. this is a situation that we worry about a lot now as things change particularly for those very specialized relationships like that one, where you have these two species that really depend upon one another. And if they respond to climate change differently or at different times, the relationship that binds them is at risk. Well, okay. So where are, where's, where's the distribution of, of this plant and therefore the bees? Yeah. So death camas is very widely distributed in the American West from the, you know, southwestern landscapes all the way up, you know, west of the Rocky Mountains in, in meadows all the way through the, the American West up into southern Canada. You'll find. Okay. Uh, how talk is it toxic to humans? Yes. And occasionally you will see stories about people uh, getting sick or dying from this plant in that when it is in its vegetative stage before it blooms, the plant looks very similar to blue camas, which is an edible plant. And they both have little, you know, small bulbs that you can dig up and eat. Wow. Uh, they're, they're not all that tasty. Uh, but people have historically eaten uh, blue camas. That was a very important starch food for many Native Americans, and, and some people still eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's one of the few starches in a lot of these wildflower meadows. But before the bloom, you've, right, these things look very similar. And sometimes people mistake one for the other and get very sick or even perish. Right. So, okay. So how do we motivate? So, okay. Somebody who's listening to this, how do we ignite that kind of, that interest? First of all, in your book, uh, I think I think we've covered your book very nicely. I, I I'll definitely get it. But how do we create that sort of internal like driver to say, hey, you know, either I want to get involved, I want to learn more, I want to take action. So so where can people can find the book? I guess online and order it. But but what else? Like what what else can people do to find out? First of all, your name is totally memorable. I, you know, I usually forget names in a second, but Thor Hansen, you're in my brain forever. Um, but yeah, so, so what's, what, how do people take the next step? 
what I think we need to do in, in terms of sort of reconnecting ourselves with the natural world, and I mean this in terms of seeing more in terms of natural history, noticing more in terms of the climate change uh, processes that are happening in our own backyards wherever we live, we have to, to break down a little bit of the barriers that we erect unconsciously between what we consider the human world and the natural world. Those are imaginary barriers, yep. but they are, uh, uh, you know, nonetheless, very significant ones in terms of how we see nature. Sure. And I think it's very instructive, if you can ever get a chance to do it, to enter or re-enter nature uh, with a child. I mean, if you don't have a borrow borrow a child, <laughs> if you don't have a child, uh, you get out there with a young child because they have not developed the full suite of filters that we all use to block out information. Yeah, I'm in a, a city right now. And if I were to walk out into that city with no filters in place, that's actually a, a significant sensory overload. There is there are conditions that that uh, people study where you if where you lack those filters, you can hardly move. You can hardly move around. There's too much information Absolutely. coming in, right? So we block out information unconsciously. We learn to do it, but that will block out the song of a swallow or a warbler just as well as it blocks out someone's annoying ringtone. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have to learn ways to retrain our ears and our eyes and our senses to notice what's happening around us. And when we do that, and going out with a child is a really great way to remind ourselves of what's out there. You know, don't, on your next hike, don't take field guides take a small child yeah. because they will see all this stuff that you are missing, whether it's the salamanders or the spider eggs or anything down there in the weeds that all of us have trained ourselves to overlook. So I think doing that, making an effort to do that, listening and watching uh, when we go outside really helps us to notice nature in a way and remind ourselves of the connections that exist between our world and the natural world. They're one and the same. Thor, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to send you uh, a link to a photo gallery that I've made here in Hong Kong. I don't know if you've been to Hong Kong before, but uh, it's bonkers, fertile, and green. The biodiversity yeah. here would blow your mind. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, it was it was fun chatting with you. And I look forward to seeing the pictures <laughs> from the, of the nature in your backyard. Sure. Okay, Thor. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Take care. Bye now. Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw.